All right, all right. Welcome once again to Swing Thoughts. Uh, quickly becoming the Internet's premier golf psychology mental game Internet show. Phenomenon. It's the one. This is the show that all the other golf psychology shows are jealous of. In fact, when we're on the range, they come over and one by one just watch us, you know, do our thing because they're like, how does Swing Thoughts get to be so good and how can we be better too? But we, the, you can't. It, the answer's in the dirt. Okay, I just threw about, <laughs> I just threw about nine metaphors in there for everyone. I'm Howard Glass, went along with uh, Tim O'Connor. Uh, of course, uh, Tim O'Connor, a legendary Canadian golf writer. Oh, my God. He's You're got, a legendary broadcaster. Uh, honestly, how do, I, you know, really, in my regular day job, what am I doing? I don't need this gig. I do it because I am such a freaking golf nerd. As uh, Humble and Fred fans across North America know that, honestly, other than uh, short pornographic films, I'd rather talk about golf than anything else in the world. Don't, don't, poor, poor Tim. Tim just like I don't. I don't know. Are we? Are, does porn exist? Yes, it does. Tim. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm a good Christian boy. All right, all Timothy right. Timothy Joseph O'Connor. Whatever. I couldn't admit to ever like taking a look at that. That uh, sound you hear in the background is uh, a gentleman who's on hold. Who uh, really, if there is a person in golf uh, who needs no introduction, it's this guy. Hey, Richard Zokel. Good morning. Good morning. Now. I'm just curious. Like you're on a you're on a uh, hotel room phone, are you not? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just strange because it's like it's got this weird kind of uh, humming humming sound. Yeah, I hear it as well. You know what would be really cool if I gave you our one eight hundred number? Could you just call back and see if we can just clear the line because we're going to spend the next half hour with you and I want to make sure people can uh, can hear you. Give me the number. All right. It's one eight five five. One eight five five six six two. Mm-hmm. Four seven four three. Four seven four three. Call you right back. All right, that's Richard Zokel. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. Tim uh, sent a bunch of information uh, this morning. I was up early looking at all the stuff, and and you, he really has not only an impressive resume, but I think Canadian golf fans of this current generation forget how much cred this guy has in terms of how many years on the tour. Twenty years. Uh, tour wins. What, what's you can't hear yourself. Hang on a second there, buddy. Just turn your headphones up. There you go. Now, can you hear yourself? I can hear myself, yes. How's that better? Much better. There you go. Don't panic. I can feel my body just relax. <laughs> I, I just want you to know, there's, just don't panic. You just turn up that knob. Hi, let me see if Zoe, can you hear us now? I can hear you, but I can still hear that humming. Uh, that's you? so weird. All right, we're just going to have to. Can we get a swing, now. Can we get a swing thought technician to his hotel room or something? Uh, well, you know, it doesn't often happen anymore on uh, on landlines, but the three of us are all in our mid to late fifties, and I and I remember. I don't know if you guys do. Where make? Do you remember when making a long distance phone call was a big deal as a kid? And we got conditioned from our parents that uh, you, you couldn't talk long because it was long distance. Absolutely. Did you guys like me? I remember my mom and dad, when I was time to talk to my grandmother or my grandfather, was like, quick, talk to your grandmother. And you were only allowed to say a couple things. And if it went on too long, you got the phone grabbed from you because long distance was a, a deal. I remember moving to the States and calling my parents collect. Right, right. And, and bread was five cents a loaf, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, listen, I grew up in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. We didn't even have bread. Because it hadn't come to Moose Jaw yet. Uh, we were just talking about, you know what, the line's fine. We are just talking about Richard Zokel. That's you. And uh, I said, you know, the current kind of crop of Canadian golf fans, I think sometimes forgets you and, and Nelford and Barr and the guys that played on the tour, Dan Halderson. But you especially, and you think about your resume, and we were just talking about the, the 20 years on the, on the PGA Tour and really how remarkable that is. Do you often look back and ruminate on uh, on that? Does that still yeah. seem remarkable to you? Well, uh, it does in some ways. I, I look back on my PGA Tour career and I go, wow, did that happen? Was I? Did I actually play out there? It just seems like a, a, a lifetime ago. Um, time marches on and uh, then you look back. I played in, I think, some 425 PGA Tour events and that's a lot of, you know, each one's a week long. So that's a lot of weeks on the road. Absolutely. And you got a young family now. You got, uh, how old are your boys now? Oh, gosh. My boys are uh, the twins. Uh, they're 28. 
our, our Joni and my youngest, is, Haley's 25. Oh, so wow. <laughs> I think I remember when, uh, you know, where a lot of people in our age bracket remember that are golf fans that remember when they were born. And uh, time goes by, and, and the next thing you know, uh, we're watching the new uh, generation of golfers on the PGA Tour. You know, it's funny being a parent. One of the, you know, I mean, if there's, if there's something like golf that has so many little sayings and, you know, little truisms, it's parenting. One of the ones that I think is uh, resonating with me the most is when you're a parent, the days are long, but the years are short. And yeah. it seems that when they're little kids, it's like, oh, my God, when they're five years old, how am I going to entertain them the entire Saturday? And the next thing you know, they're 21, and they're asking if you can come and get them so they can come to your house to do their laundry, which is what I'm doing today. Um Let's talk a little bit about golf, though. Is it, you know, I often imagine someone like you that played on the PGA Tour uh, through the 80s, late 70s, 80s, and 90s. Is it like a rock star in a way, looking back on, you know, back in the old days of touring where it was different, it was a different time? The, the current tour is not like it was when you played it um, in terms of money, exposure, in terms of social media. Do, do you relate when you watch golf on TV now? Well, the, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, as you mentioned that, uh, obviously when I played on the tour, you know, my first year was 1982, and then through the 80s, 90s, and then into the early 2000s, and that was it. I was done. Um, you know, a lot has changed. The money's changed. The recognition, the stardom of it has changed. But what hasn't changed, the, the equipment has changed. We can now, that's a whole new subject on, on that. But the psychology hasn't changed. And there's so little discussion and little understanding on the psychology, and uh, that hasn't. And, uh, you know, we can just look back to last weekend and the weekend before and look at how some of the best players in the world have made some mistakes and, um, you know, mental mistakes. And, and then you watch some of the people who perform magnificently. So that hasn't changed a lot. And quite frankly, I think that's kind of the new horizon in golf as well. But, you know, if we talk about something that's analogous, so the equipment is so much different than it was, say, when you played. The, yeah. the, the technology around equipment um, specifications and the, the, build, you know, the track man and, the, and the, the what's that pad thing that everyone's using, Timmy? Body, body track. Body track and uh, all this technology around ball flight. But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of technology advancement when it comes to the mental game. There's none, or excuse me, I shouldn't say none. There's um, there's Focus very little, down. and I remember, well, gosh, I mean, you guys still you remember in 1982, my rookie year on the PGA Tour, I was out there for six months, and the psychology of playing out there, the anxiety that I put upon myself, and, and psychology is all one's perspective, right? And, and, and the anxiety that I put on myself was just so tremendous that I couldn't couldn't perform. I couldn't play the way I wanted to. And then I, you know, donned this thing called a Walkman and put it on. And the moment I did, it just changed everything. I got out in the golf course, and the very first time I tried it was in the first round of uh, the Greater Milwaukee Open. And I shoot 65, and it was just so effortless. And, um, and then they yarded me right out of the tent on the 18th green and they called up the United States Golf Association to find out if it was legal and they asked me what I was listening to and I thought I was going to get disqualified and once they found out that I was listening to music they said okay you can do that and then um, but it did something it did something um, um, psychological to me to allow me to calm a portion of my mind that hyperactive side that that uh, gets us all in trouble and uh, so there was a discovery at that moment. So from that point on, um, boy, I just wanted to dig into the psychology of the game. And, um, you know, Nelford and I traveled with sports psychologists, and one particular from Toronto named Dr. Richard Lanetta did a lot of biofeedback work. And uh, and that's been a fascinating part of golf that uh, I literally kind of devoted my whole life, professional golf career, to. But, Dick, like you were saying, uh it seems to be an area of golf that just people aren't exploring. Not to the, it, it's it's amazing that people haven't gone as far right. with looking at it. Why do you think that is? Is it is it part of that people look at um, maybe the mental part they might be deficient or something like yes. that or. You know, what's the fear? Is it a fear thing that's preventing them from getting there? Well, I, it's a lack of understanding. And, and I think that some of these psychologists, and I've, you know, like I said, I spent a lot of time with working with all the best of them in the, on the, in, in through the 80s and 90s. 
And Bob Rotella, who had who back in the well, I guess the early '90s came up with when when everyone has this discovery of finding out that you're in the present or the future or the past. It was like, wow, that's true. That you know, everyone can go, yeah, I do that. And um, but there's uh, and then you try and will yourself into the present, and it just doesn't work because you have a conditioned response that's automatic and. Um, and, and, and so you have to retrain yourself. And, and I think the industry, by and large, doesn't have an understanding on it. And there's this thing you and I have talked about, Tim, that I call golf insanity. Mm-hmm. And it's that definition of expecting a, you know, a different result by doing the same thing over and over again. I think that, by and large, the whole industry is in it. Uh, in order to perform, if you're thinking about swing thoughts while you're playing, is you just that's part of golf insanity. You won't be able to perform, and uh, or perform very well or to your full potential. And and I think there's a there's a big void out there of really understanding how the mind works. And it's something that um, I developed my own methodologies on and to deal with. So it's something that's um, that's uh, fascinating. Richard Zoko, I want to talk about your methods and, and some of the advancements that have been made in terms of you know, being more mindful and being more in the present. And, I, and I'm sort of smiling when you're talking because I think, you know, people just think, oh, I, I can become instantly more present. And yet people have been trying to learn to meditate through Buddhism and other things for thousands of years. It's a practice. It's something you would practice yeah. the same way you would practice hitting flop shots. But I want to get back to 1982. And I, one of the coolest things about you putting music on in that first round, and, you know, you, you had the moniker Disco Dick for the rest of your career off right. and on. Yeah. But one of the things I love about that story is it's such a contrarian thing to do. I mean, one of the things I think that inhibits a lot of human beings and golfers, especially from doing something different, is we don't want to be seen right. as doing something different from our the buddies in our foursome. But there you were, you were a rookie on the tour. It was the one of the. It was a pretty bold act for a kid in his you know early to mid twenties. But did you were you not self conscious during that round of sixty five? Well, how the start the, it started like oh it was July, and I played I had made a cut all year, and the week before was the Western Open in Chicago playing at Butler National. So just prior to this, I you know I was just climbing the walls with frustration um, and because I wasn't able to perform, but I knew I was playing well. But I knew my anxious nature, my hyperactive thoughts were just getting me, you know, uh, ahead of myself and I wasn't able to, you know, perform. So the week before I said, I got, I got this Walkman and I said, I'm going to put, this is what I'm going to do. And we have these conversations to our, with ourselves. So that's, that's another thing we can talk about in a few minutes uh, that gives us proof that we have two uh, personalities. But so I'm say, talking to myself and going, wow, I can't do this. I'm, you know, this is so radical. I mean, what am I going to do? You know, put these headphones on and I'm going to well, be, what if I shoot 80? Yeah, what will the stars of the PGA Tour think of me? What's the media exactly. going to think? What's going to happen in the in the uh, locker room? So I chickened out and didn't do it. <laughs> and I, and I, I chickened out and I missed the cut. So after I missed the cut, I just dog cussed myself all the way home, kicked, you know, just, and one of the things that I pride myself on is I have no problem failing. And that, you know, if you can have that acceptance, then I think you can move forward a lot easier in life because you can learn from your mistakes. But what I don't accept is being afraid or being a chicken. I didn't like that. So I said to myself, well, you you, after I cussed myself out a little bit, I said, you're going to do it next week in Milwaukee. And I'll remember the night before, this was a Wednesday night before the first round, and, and it was coming down to crunch time with this Walkman, and I went, oh, God, I, the same trepidation started to come through. What if I shoot 80? How am I going to be accepted? So I, and I just deferred. I stuffed the Walkman in my bag, and I said, decide tomorrow. So I remember teeing off the 10th tee at Milwaukee. It was about 7.30 in the morning. There was no one out there. And I'm playing with Ronnie Black and Larry Rinker. And I made sure I got about 100 yards off the, away from the clubhouse and let those guys walk in front of me. And I pulled this thing out and put it on my head and, you know, clicked on some eagles. You know, I don't know. It was Hotel California or something <laughs> like that. And then, you know, and Larry Rinker goes, wow, look at this. So I made a bunch of birdies. And, and I can remember coming down the 18th hole. I'm seven under par, and I'm in the lead. And all the camera guys are taking pictures. And I'm sitting there going, wow, this is easy. <laughs> this is, and I, I was safe there. I was behind the ropes. I was listening to this music, and it was 
so calming, and I was in my own little world, and I loved every minute of it. There you go, Dick. And, and right and right now, all the golfers are going. Where I got to get a copy of Hotel California on my phone. And Dick, this is perfect because when you put the headphones on, this could be heaven or this could be hell. That's right. Well, you know what? Again, all golfers are so solution or ga- gimmick oriented that they're thinking, man, if I could break eighty, I'll put up, I'll, I'll put the entire album on over and over again. Sure. They, miss, they, they think the point is it's the Eagles that yeah. that made you shoot the low number. So what had happened, so later in my career, after I started working and had my struggles and had some successes on tour and, and working with sports psychologists, all kinds of them, I studied with doing ancient Chinese meditation and so forth, and, and uh, then I found a, a procedure, and or not a procedure, but it's methodology, and this fellow told me, he says, this is the reason, this is what happened in your brain when you listen to music. And so the mechanics of actually knowing what the brain does, and I went, oh, that makes complete sense. And and basically what the music did is it, it, first of all, two things, you have to kind of move forward with an understanding and having this premise that we have two personalities and two distinct types of thoughts. And this isn't, I didn't make this up. I mean, you know, people, brain scientists who work at the Department of Psychology at Harvard Medical School are the people that have told this, where I've learned this. And you need to understand, and, and, and the simplest way, well, getting back to the, what, the question I had a, a few minutes ago, is that how to prove this. If you have a conversation with yourself, that's proof enough that there's two personalities in there, because in order to carry on a conversation, there needs to be two entities. Mm-hmm. And so, but the, so there's two different types of thought process. There's a logical thought process, one plus one equals two, and that's in the left brain thought. And your left brain can only do two things. It can project forward and it can look back. Projecting forward, that it stimulates a whole bunch of anxiety. So if you're a golfer on the first tee, for an example, you haven't hit your tee shot yet, and you look down the fairway, and there's OB left and water right, you're projecting into the future what may or may not happen, your ball going out of bounds, and it starts to create anxiety, and it disrupts your ability to execute that shot. And then you look back, you remember back from your your past history here how every time you tee off on this hole, you hit it out of bounds. So you have trauma. And it stimulates this anxiety that just disrupts your ability to execute. So you're in trauma. But when you depart from that thought process and move into the present, whereas, you know, some people call it the zone, some people call it whatever. But when you're in the present moment, that's like riding a motorcycle or doing things um, that, that, that stimulate spatial thought, then anxiety can't exist. It's like removing oxygen from a, a fire. It, it distinguishes that anxiety. It, there is no anxiety, and that's why we seek this stillness. And it takes thought discipline to get into there from a conscious point of view. And I think that that's one of the key pieces that we connect back to uh, 1982 in the music piece, is that one of of the things that we love listening to music because it puts us in the right moment we're lost in music and we stop thinking forwards or backwards that type of thing. right and the thing is and and, and and another thing that seemed that i find and i always hear people and say well i play well when i just stop thinking and i and i just catch it just catches me as wrong like if we were to stop thinking we wouldn't be alive we ha- and I always try and correct people and say, listen, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're thinking, you're stopping logical thought, and then you move into spatial thought. Like, spatial thought is a t- distinct type of thought that we do with any other sports. If you're catching a ball, throwing a ball, shooting a puck, moving quickly in, uh, you know, with hockey, or let, let's say you're playing baseball. So you're the batter at the plate, and the job of the pitcher, the opposing pitcher, is to throw this curveball at you and, and get it past you with you not being able to hit it with the bat. So he throws this thing, and it's coming at your head. First, it's a curveball, and it's coming at your head at 80 miles an hour, and it's going to curve into the strike zone. So your thought process has to pick up and anticipate where that's going to be sometime in the future. And then you have to move your arm. So that, and the bat, in order to make contact with this ball, that type of thought is, in, I call it, spatial thought. 
it's the same thing as catching a ball or dancing or or driving a, a car anytime with time and space. All that type of thought is, uh, it seems to me, if I may just jump in, it yep. seems very reactive and very instinctual. Very instinctive yes and very non-logical that's correct it's opposite so your logical mind doesn't even understand this and it's like almost like it seems it seems so counterintuitive to the way most of us think about a round of typical golf that we play where it's nothing but stuck in this logical rut that we're in and only occasionally do we make a swing or, or hit a shot that's reactive to a target in a spatial manner. Well, that's what it's it's basically counter logic because it is intuitive. And that's the that's the talent of like Johnny Miller. Johnny Miller was you know, in, in, in you know when he played, he, he reacted. He's reacting to the pin. Like his thoughts aren't wrapped up in his swing. It was a pin, and, and when he would target the pin, whether it would be with a three iron or a pitching wedge, his attention was on the. It's the same thing. Like if you were throwing a ball at a catcher, sure. your attention's on the mitt. But so having said that, I just want to. I, I want to. There's so much that you're saying that is basically our philosophy here on the show has always been, and because we're the, the type of guys we are, we just believe there's. A a whole lot of learning in golf for the average person. Forget whether you're a low handicap or not. Our premise, our raison d'etre is you can shave strokes off your golf game, if that's something you want to do, without working on your golf swing relentlessly. And I want to get to that exactly. in, in a bit. So let's just get back to the 80s and 90s when sort of the Rotella, the Revolution, Coop, and all these guys, the guy that you were working with, Richard Lanetto. Golfers would talk about getting in the zone. Mm. And I remember hearing about it thinking it seemed like an accident. Yes. Right. Exactly. Like it sort of happened through divine intervention on one day you were going to you got into the zone. So if if we all accepted that as true, I want you to speak to this. Then why weren't we spending more time in the golf community trying to understand a what gets you into the zone and and are is there a way just like in meditation that you can make that part of your practice? Absolutely, and that is and the problem is it comes back to this premise. If you if if people if we think that we have one singular mind, we're going to be um, you're going to you're going to fight a losing battle. You will never make progress, and you'll stimulate this insanity. So what what you have to accept is that in order to get into the zone or that present state, when you're conscious, you have to develop some thought skill, like meditation, to go there. Now, most people's hyperactive logical mind, you look at any A-type person, they go, oh, I can't stand it. I can't do that. They, they try it, and they, only last, they last less than a minute because their minds are going all over the place. Well, it's just, it's no different. You, you, did you pick... It, you know, no one uh, knows anyone who picked up a driver and all of a sudden, you know, striped at 300 yards down the middle of the fairway. It took skill development to exactly. learn that skill. Well, it's the same thing with thought. That's our premise on this show. Skill exactly. And, and, and so, but if you, you know, if you have to accept that you're transitioning into a different type of thought, and that thought is very, um, is where freedom is. I mean, anxiety doesn't exist. Now, we do accidentally stumble into that state on occasion. The idea is to have thought discipline so you can activate that thought anytime you want, no matter what the situation, and let the other people come unglued. Yeah, but we see golfers continually. I mean, so in 1982, you take the risk, Disco Dick. You start to go down the road. There is more uh, cognizance about the role of uh, psychology in golf or tell. However, we are still stuck in this paradigm of finding golf nirvana through um, through technical stuff. And people still go to the golf course, um, pick up a thought on the range that something's going to work. Yeah, I'm just I'm going to do this with my left arm. I'm going to do this or that swing take technique. That, exactly. So they go out with their logical brains trying to make golf swings. And by hole three, they're on swing thought number 27. Oh, yeah. They're, in, they're down the rabbit hole. They're down the rabbit hole of golf and Santa. There's no way. First of all, people don't understand that, they, they, that when you're on the driving range, it doesn't matter. There's no, there's no accountability. There's no responsibility. You know, you hit a good, and then you make this pre-assumption that you're going to be able to take it to the golf course. It doesn't work that way because, uh, you know, people's minds just get too active and, and hyperactive and, um, and result-oriented. You have to develop a 
thought skill where you detach emotionally from the results. And we're so emotionally attached to the score or our score. And, and, and when your ego is wrapped around it, you are, in, you are creating a recipe for disaster. But Richard Zuckel, back just quickly um, to what Tim was saying about, you know, people go to the range. Let's just back up a, a step or two before that. For most people... It's a big step to to admit or to understand. Admit's the wrong word. To see that there is a bigger picture, a bigger premise here than than you know. Do I need to cock my wrists early or late? That if you were to convince a few more people that practicing this, whatever this is, mm-hmm. golf EQ, and we can talk about that later, but that the practice of golf isn't about how well you're hitting it on the range and can you, you know, hit a, a, a punch shot under trees. It's how you can play the game. And mm-hmm. the problem with the game is we don't really learn to play it on the range. We, we, we learn to play some other thing, which is golf hitting, right. but it isn't playing golf. Right. It's, we need to learn how to play golf on the golf course. So you right. can't find it on the range. So it's, let's take the analogy of someone who's learning. We all learned how to drive a car. So when we jump in a car, we're anxious, we're not sure what to do, we kind of, okay, well, that's the gas, and this is the brake, and here's the steering wheel, and here's the gear, and we know how to, what, what happens. So you consciously have to press on the gas to make it accelerate. Then you have to consciously lift your foot off the gas to make it slow down, and then consciously on the brake, and you're, you have to, it's all conscious at the start. You have to learn, you know, to develop some form of skills, and you practice so it becomes automatic and, and move into, and, but once you have have a, a form of a game, and it doesn't really matter if you're a 25 hand. You may not have the best swing in the world, but you still have an ability to execute shots. And then what has to happen is you have to take it on the golf course. And for, when you go into a golf swing technique and are trying to play on the golf course, it's completely disruptive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't allow you to execute shots to your ability, whether you're a tour player or whether you're a 25 handicap and you have to learn how to you know how to let go of those thoughts then the practice facility is to train yourself to better execute you know using some physical uh, techniques to improve your game but you've got to develop to a point of automatic and then when you go to the the, onto the golf course you have to just learn to just execute okay coming up we're going to talk about golf eq we're going to talk about technique on the course and a couple other things but i think tim wants to bring up uh some very vital information tim (laughs) well dick you and i were talking on the phone uh, a couple weeks ago and it just led to a very cool email interchange between us Mm -hmm. and we were talking about you know left brain right brain uh linear thought versus spatial and we started to talk about the yips and Mm -hmm. i think this whole thing is um it's all related. I mean, golfers suffer yeah. paralysis by analysis on the golf course through logical, linear thinking. They just get in their own way. And among few uh, unfortunate souls, they develop the yips, kind of like a spasmodic thing where they can't even pull back, say, the putter and hit it. Yep. And um, anyways, I wanted to read part of this email that uh, I got from you because I think it's it's absolutely brilliant. Um, So I was asking you when the yips happen, and you go, the yips happen when LTA, linear thought, conditioned response, grows to a point of hyperactivity. Imbalance incurs between the two types of thought because the golfer pours more effort into logical thinking to improve. What they don't know is that this is the cause of the problem. And over time, this grows like cancer. The conditioned response becomes a form of PTSD. Panic sets in, and everything goes into the dumper. That's and, some brilliant stuff. And I, and, I, and so I was talking to my wife, and I said, you know what? That may seem really over the top, but for a guy who makes his living, who puts food on the table by playing, this is really super important. And, and I can totally get what you're saying. I mean, golfers, Howard and I were talking today how on the range sometimes we – just almost drove ourselves insane yeah. trying to figure it out, almost right. to the point of traumatizing ourselves. Well, no, I was saying to Tim, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Richard, is that you know I, I believe in the many, many years I've played, and I'm a pretty decent level player, that there have been moments on the range where I've gotten, it's, it's almost... It is a bit a form of insanity, uh, a form of mental dysfunction sure. at how frustrated 
the game can be because I can't find the physical answer. But what I what I think I've learned as I've gotten older is there is no physical answer. That the the real learning in all this is target uh, acquisition, target. Um, Awareness. Awareness. Mm -hmm. Awareness of your breathing. Awareness of how you show up in the world. And I I sent a note to to somebody I used to play at the National with years ago. And I said to him basically briefly that, like a lot of things in life, I just wish I knew in my 30s what I know in my 50s. Because I might have enjoyed a lot more rounds of golf. And I think a lot of players are like that, whether you're a 25 or a scratch. Absolutely. There's an enjoyment level that, that I think... You're missing by not knowing that there's a a better game to be played. Well, that's the golf insanity. It's just, you know, like you're supposed to go out there and enjoy this. And and, 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 and it will only depend on your perceptual awareness. And if you're you're going out there to, um, uh, you know, satisfy your ego in, 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 you know, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. George Knudsen was great. Excuse me. He would always say, in order to gain control, you have to give up control. So whether you're trying to figure out what that means, what it means in my mind is you give up logical control to go into your your intuition and learn how to play there. You know, like... When your intuition is in charge, it knows what to do. It knows your limitations. This, 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 this other entity over there, your left brain, which is run by your ego, it wants control. It's thinking logical. It has no idea how to do it. It's like putting a child in, in the driver's seat and saying, you know, go drive from Oakville down to uh, downtown Toronto. They can't do it. It does, doesn't work. It's not, they're not, they don't have the skills. In Although the- I've been on that QEW enough, I believe there are ch- ch- drunken children driving on that road. There's all kinds of, aren't there? <laughs> there's all yeah, kinds yeah, of drunken yeah. babies. So, Dick, we were talking, we, as, as uh, Howard was saying, the premise of, uh, key premise of this show is that, you know, the average player, a 15 handicapper, can shave strokes off, five yeah. strokes without changing the golf swing. However, throughout professional golf, we've watched players go after technical proficiency, taking their game up a level and just going in the dumper. Um, Ian Baker Finch, for one. Uh, David Duvall, for a long time. Bobby Clampett, your roommate, roommate, uh, Brigham Young. I mean, classic underachiever. And now we're seeing it with... They're we're seeing, seeing Tiger with, Woods, and even we're seeing it with Tiger. We're seeing it with Mike Weir. Mike yeah, the, Weir, the great question in Canadian golf is: where in the last six or seven years, you know, what's happened to Mike Weir? I googled it the other day, and there was something about his wrist and an elbow and injury. But you have a different thought about that. Well, yeah, I think you know Mike is a very logical. You see, and the thing is, the the logical mind doesn't start to develop until adulthood. An adulthood doesn't happen. It happens to some people at eighteen. It some happens to some at twenty eight. But once it starts to develop, it, it never stops, and then it overtakes everything. So it's logical. Every every person, every golfer has to think and make their own decisions. So people like Mike and a lot of other golfers, Tiger as well. They think that if they improve their golf swing, they will become better golfers. I want to make this analogy from just last weekend at uh, in at Riviera between Adam Scott, who has a perfect golf swing. We could, you know, he he could be the model of the most perfect golf swing, and uh, Bubba Watson, who is a model of a horrible golf swing. Is no foundation. It's all you know. It's all talk about spatial. Now, on the eighth tee at Riviera last week, Adam Scott performed brilliantly. Got up, birdie, eagled the first hole, made three more birdies. He's standing on the eighth tee with a two-stroke lead. But then, with his perfect golf swing that he has, he proceeded to squander four strokes away over the next eleven holes. And so his performance, his what I call his execution quotient, his ability to assess shots and execute shots and grade them, your own self-valuation, he wasn't able to do it. And he literally squandered that tournament away. He should have, if he, if he did 50% of his mistakes, he would, have, uh, he would have won that golf tournament easy. So, and Bubba, compared to Bubba Watson, who doesn't have a good swing, he moves all over the place, his ability to execute, to perform, was brilliant. What about the level of awareness? 
that they have. I mean, is that a key thing that you're talking about, that ability to evaluate yourself? Uh, because you and I also had a spirited conversation about Ricky Fowler at the Waste Management. Right. Uh, it comes to 17, two-stroke lead. Uh, fans are ch- chanting, Ricky, Ricky. Yep. Has the driver put... Uh, no, he t- hits driver, hits the downslope over the green. Well, yeah, so that situation is another, is a fascinating one. So he's on the seven. Ricky Fowler's on the 17th uh, tee at Phoenix. He's got a two-shot lead. And, you know, his last tee shot he hit was on the 15th hole. That tee shot went 344 yards. They were talking about on air. They're just uh, that he was hitting these monster drives. So now he plays 16 a par three. He gets there on 17. The hole to the front of the green is playing 304, and it's 317 to the to the hole. And the green is a lot harder. His last tee shot he hit, and it, uh, you know 344. So if he hit the same tee shot and it lands on the green, it's going to bounce over the green. He hit a perfect tee shot. Perfect execution, but what he did unsatisfactorily, unsatisfactory to his own assessment was to hit driver. So Richard, that was a mistake. Here's my question. You know, yep. and we've talked about this situation a dozen times in the uh, time we've been doing this show, and, and and as guys just talking about golfers, let's just hold that thought about Ricky Fowler for just a minute. If I'm if I'm caddying for an 18 handicap and they're having the round of their lives, and they are on schedule to shoot whatever that number is, let's say 85, 84, I'm caddying for them on the 17th hole of a round. It's 317. I give I give them a five iron. If they only need to make a couple of bogeys to get their best round, I'm going to say, let's go five iron, let's go wedgie, let's go near the green, let's make bogey. How is it possible, back to a a player who's number four in the world right now, that somewhere in that group of him and his caddy, situational awareness wasn't, well, I don't know, let's hit six iron sandwich, let's hit something other than taking the chance that I'm going to hit this driver over the green. Now, before you answer, let me ask one last part of that question. Is that a logical mind breakdown, or is that a mental deficiency in terms of the the moment? I think it's a lack of experience. He's a young kid. He hasn't been in that position and failed yet. Now, keep in mind, Ricky Fowler, who the past few years, when he's been in those positions, he's never not failed. Players' championship is a great example. Yeah. Exactly. He, he pulled off brilliant shots. And, you know, so... He doesn't. He isn't. He doesn't have enough experiences where he's failed at them. You, you know, every if you've spent any amount of time in those positions, you'll have successes and you'll have failures. But now, all of a sudden, when he hit this excellent shot and it went over the green, if he doesn't. Uh, look back and learn from that, then he'll probably set himself up to make the same mistake again. And then, you know, if you keep making these mistakes, well, we know, you know, what, you know, the condition response of Pavlov's dogs are. I mean, it goes positive and negative. So he knew that tournament, he lost it. And and if he says, well, if he blames it just because it landed on a downslope in the fairway and he's putting it up to happenstance, then, you know, he's not making much progress on it. He needs to say, you know what, if he's a, well, he did learn from it because he was on that tee in the sudden death playoff and he didn't do dry, he didn't pull driver. He hit three wood. So he did learn from it. He wasn't going to do that again. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, in the last couple of minutes with uh, Richard Zokal. I, I got to say, like it's fascinating to hear these words come out of your mouth because it, it seems to me, and, and looking back at your life and career, that you've been on this path a long time, and now it seems that other people are starting to catch up to it. Yet still, versus the golfing public, who are who still won't think of this as something they need to work on, they'll go get a new driver and start hitting drivers, uh, you know, day one of the new season. But what's golf EQ, and what is that? Uh, I know you're working with this uh, technology. Just give us an idea what that is, and maybe people will start to uh, adopt it. Well, basically, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a methodology at this point, where back in 1999, I, when I was, um, I, I created a new scoring system, because it drove me nuts. I was trying to will myself into the present. It just wasn't working. Every time I'd get into, under pressure, I'd default back to my condition. Because scoring is in the future, right? Pardon, pardon me? Because when you're focused on scoring, you're in the future. Correct. You, correct. Exactly. You want result oriented. You want that score before you, uh, you know, that you uh, score before you actually hit the shot, and and it creates an enormous amount of anxiety. And and so I said, 
the problem is is score is the number and I said you know, I've got to stop that so I've got to create a new scoring system so I created the scoring system at the time which is now golf EQ which is your execution quotient and it's a blend of two things it, it refined down True success comes down to two things, and they're key performance indicators, and you self-evaluate them. And they are your ability to assess, which is your perceptual awareness, and your ability to execute. Now, if you put your attention on those two things and get very proficient with this type of thought, it inherently brings you into the present moment. You learn to it. So it's when you so what you do is on your assessment. Your assessment on your first putt is reading the green, and you evaluate yourself. It's a self-evaluation. You grade yourself: excellent, satisfactory, or unsatisfactory, and you collect this data. And then you you because so when you putt bad, you want to find out why you executing poorly or you're assessing poorly because it doesn't matter if you have to have a these two have to blend together because it doesn't matter if you make an excellent execution with a five iron I remember standing over this five iron on this par three and I hit this five iron I'm going I'm posing on I'm going oh man that's gonna go right in the hole <laughs> and it landed in the water short of the green and I went wow I couldn't put a better swing on it and then it dawned on me hit me like a ton of bricks going well your assessment was wrong you needed a three iron not a five iron so it doesn't matter how well you make an excellent execution if you got the wrong club in your head or that assessment prevented you from thinking you're a bad person so well and then that's another thing that's another thing if you that's where your ego is if you think then if you are emotionally attached if your identity is attached to your performance then you are deep down that rabbit hole, and a lot of golfers are. I used to be that way. So one and, thing, Dick, that I want to, um, yeah, but you've you've moved on, Dick. You're, yep. now, you're now an elder in our golf community. <laughs> we now respect you. You know, but you're a think, shaman. I want to go into a sweat lodge with you. Just <laughs> us, a fire and a and a sand wedge. I want to, I want to chant at the moon with Dick. Um, wearing minimal clothing. No. Um, one of the things I want to make sure I put out here is that. People might think we're contradicting ourselves to some degree. I mean, you talked about assessment. Assessment is a function of your logical brain. Mm-hmm. But on the golf course, like you've been saying, there is a there are times in which we need to be thinking. We need to collect the data. We thinking think, logically, yeah. Okay, what's the yardage? What's the wind doing? Correct. That, that takes up. Absolutely. How far do I hit my, my five iron? But then we have to make this transition right. into that place where we're, it's, we're allowing spatial thought to happen, allowing okay. it to happen. Here's what happens in the brain. So we got our left brain, and it, it can only think forward and back, and it thinks logically in a certain type of language. Our right brain thinks spatially, which is space-time. In the middle of it, we have this thing called our corpus callosum. It does... I got one of those. It's not as good as it once was, though. What's that? My corpus callosum isn't working as well as it once did. Right. But, I mean, well, hey, you the know, corpus callosum. six years old, for God's sake, Richard. <laughs> Get off me. Uh, keep going, please. The, the corpus callosum is, does hemispheric lateralization. And you go, what the hell does that mean? He says, well, it communicates from the left brain to the right brain. There's 300 million what they're called axonal fibers that do this. So in milliseconds, you can, and as it relates to golf, you're standing there, you have to do that logical thought that Tim was just talking about, like what's the yardage, which way the wind is direction, to what degree. So your logical goes, it's blowing from the east. But your spatial mind, your thought puts, when it zips another message to your right side, it knows what kind of force. It feels it. So there's this back and forth, and, and we humans have this ability to, you know, have probably thousands and thousands of messages going back and forth in milliseconds. And then, but what has to happen is who's going to drive the bus? So if our logical mind is driving the bus, you're going to start thinking to swing techniques. And when you're in that spatial mode or in the zone, and when it's happening and there's no anxiety, that's when you're you're in full flight, you're in and able to uh, you know perform at the highest level. But getting back to your uh, example of the five iron, and you assess that. Perhaps you made a really good motion. You felt good about it, and you just self-assess and go, well, that was the wrong club. The the beauty of that, and I think is a good you know piece for us to start to wrap things up on, is it's fine for us. We're all going to hit bad shots but or hit shots that don't turn out the way we'd like them. I think the real 
big piece for most people is to assess whether that was a, a bad decision in terms of a club selection that just happens, and then you don't beat yourself up about it. Oh, what, yeah. What a lot of people will, because if there's no recognition that sometimes you're just going to make a mistake, then you start thinking, well, what did I do wrong? Did I not hit my five iron well enough? Mm-hmm. And then you're walking down the fairway thinking that, like a lot of things, it, something's wrong with me and my golf swing. When in just fact, hey, it was a simple mistake. You, you, you just didn't, you just didn't, I don't know, read the wind strong enough or whatever it is. Well, part of, you're right, part of um, learning and, and advancing is learning to put that behind you and, 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 you know, the next shot, move on to the next shot. You know, Hogan said, what's the most important, someone asked Ben Hogan, what's the most important shot? And he said, your next one. And what I think he meant, it's not, so it's the one you have now. Yeah, right. And, so that shot you have, and then once you do it, you move on to the next one, and you have a series of these all the way through a round. But you can give yourself a break if you know the if you start to assess it in the right order, you mm-hmm. can, where it's not like I suck, my my ego's in play. It's like okay, well, I don't know, that felt okay. I just came up short. Why is that? Well, well it's your own well, club. Then you're you're back into that left brain looking back because yeah. you know you hit that bad shot, and if you stay there and right. beat yourself up, you're going to create more. More trauma, and then that's what you're going to be real good at is beating yourself up. So you got to let it go and move on to the next shot. Put it behind you. Don't get ahead of yourself, and learn that thought discipline to stay in the present moment. It's a very difficult thing to do, but the more you do, if you don't do it, you're going to be, you know, the golfer's going to be pathetic at it. But the the ones you look at all these guys that are coming down, you know, how Tiger was coming down the 18th hole when he won that uh, his fourth major in a row back in what was it 2004 i remember tiger, i'm looking at him uh, and you're tiger slam oh that was you know he was well, so was calm last, was and i'm court. going this guy's on to something this guy's doing something you know because no human being has ever been in that position like greg norman would come unglued and he did many times <clears throat> all the time oh, because yeah, he yeah. wasn't prepared <clears throat> effectively to have this thought skill to be to actually be in the present moment. You know, it's so funny you say, I, I want to yeah. wrap this up. Uh, Richard Zokel, we certainly appreciate your, your time, but it's funny we say about the difference between what, what Greg Norman did under pressure time and time again. It's it's interesting. His one, do you guys remember, the, well, I know Richard would, but do you remember what Rich, uh, Greg Norman's uh, fault under pressure was? High right. Always. He yeah. blocked every shot Always. under pressure, high right. Yes. And you'd think... You'd think somewhere in his very disciplined mind, he might get over a shot under pressure and have developed some technique or technology that well, would allow him to execute something on the well, the thing why block. The thing- the thing there is that he doesn't have the disciplined mind that we think he had. He had great yeah. talent, Absolutely. but all he was standing in the middle of the 18th hole at Augusta, and that uh, uh, with Jack Nicklaus winning in '86, and he hit that seven iron right in the middle of the fairway. All you got to do is hit on the green two putt, and he wins. And that thing was 20 yards right of the bunker on the yep. right. Oh yeah, and he did that at the 17th hole at Glen Abbey one year. And remember when that OB stake was? It was in a parking lot, and he hit it under a car. Um, Richard, where do people get more information about what you're doing these days and, and golf EQ? If that's or if that's is that Googleable? No, not yet. Okay. No, it's 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 in the uh, it's in the you know the concept stages, and I'm not sure at what point we're going to be releasing it or moving forward with it. But uh, right now, it's just it's mulling around in, in in on paper and in my mind. Well, we appreciate you taking some time with us. I, I guarantee you, this won't be the last time we hound you to be on Canada's finest seven-episode series about the mental side of golf. Well, you you know how much I love about it, and uh, I'd be happy to chat more about this in the future as well. Well, we hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. I did. Thank you. All right. There's Richard Zockel. There's your theme song. Uh, Thanks, my friend. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. Wow. Talk about a golf nerd. Absolutely. I mean, he's one of my favorite people to talk to. I, I, I talked to him on the phone Every couple of months, and it's never ten minutes. No, he's. Uh, you can tell he's thought a lot about this. A lot about this. You know, it's funny. He said a bunch of things. I worked. I was at the National from 1990 until 2005, and I've heard every George Knudsen story. Oh yeah. 
Like, you know, I just love you. One of my friends there, the old guy, he's passed away, Joe Rice. I used to, he used to come and watch us play the last three or four holes. And he was telling, he used to tell me every place on the golf course where George hit it from, what club he hit. And he used to say that all the time, that whole idea of you got to, you know, to get control, you got to give up control. And I never understood it. Um, I always thought it was a physical thing. Mm-hmm. Erroneously, I never questioned it because I just wasn't in that way. I just thought, well, man, you, what do you mean? Do you have to like swing easier for it to go further? There's some of that in it, but I never got that it was about giving up the logical side of your brain. Because like a lot of golfers, I hung on to what makes me a good player is this thing I'm working on right now, which was all BS. Yeah, well, that's that's the way you largely function in the rest of your world is you you analyze things you can take this plan take this action that's that's generally as adults what we do but we end up on the golf course instead of swinging the golf club we play golf swing which is a cliche in its own but why do we hold on to that and i because i look back and i think a lot of guys listening well this will resonate we hang on to the idea that we must have that's our sort of security blanket because we couldn't just go out and play instinctively or reactively or spatially, as Richard Zokel said. It comes back to ego. Ego, we don't trust ourselves. So we see things. It's just like the other day I was looking at... Um, so, so I've been reading a lot of Timothy Galway stuff, and it's all about trust and your body. But I see this email come up on how to make a good golf swing that's going to make my, my swing path better. <laughs> that's I'm right. right in there. Of course. And, I, and I'm reading that, and then I go, oh, wait a sec. Once again, down the rabbit hole of trying to find nirvana through some technical piece. There is a balance, but I really think, why do we keep doing that? Because our ego wants to protect us. And um, so we're going to seek... We're going to seek... Um, Nirvana through some expert advice, something we're going to get. Something we don't already have. Exactly. It just pulls at us constantly that we can find it through something else. Whereas the real work is really looking at yourself and actually having, it sounds so dramatic, but the vulnerability to look at what's really going on with me and take a look what's going on until you're able to do that type of stuff like Dick did. Dick, that was a massive risk. Yeah, but, but, but even before you're looking, even I, I would say this, even before you get to the looking at your vulnerability, you have to understand that if you want to execute a better golf swing, let's say the layer above, you know, realizing we're all vulnerable human beings and only have a few more days left on the planet, we really should get out of our basements. <laughs> before that, though, uh, Obi-Wan, I, I just think that if people understood... And I'm talking about someone like yourself that's been lucky enough to have great instruction and uh, a pretty decent move. It, but I, I, even at my level, at your level, if people could just figure out that if they spend a little bit more time going towards the target. Like I always tell the story of we're playing golf with my brothers. And one of them, I always ask, you know, where are you hitting it to? And they have no idea. They'd have no concept of where it's about to go, I th- like a lot of golfers. I think it, you know, so, okay, getting back to what Dick was saying, it's logic. So if we're really smart and we, we listen to programs like this and we've read some golf psychology stuff, we know that logically, don't go to the tee thinking about do this a lot, you know, not thinking about a technical thing. I'm mm-hmm. going to trust myself. Right. By the fourth hole, I'm, I'm four over par and I'm starting to panic. Actually, trauma. He used the word trauma, which he, is a great. He's actually right. So well, we start to start to uh, go into the spiral of looking at ourselves as being deficient. Golf swing's broken. I need to find something. That logical thing. Everyone seems to think in this world that we're driven by logic and we're intellectual and all that. That's not what drives the bus. It's our feelings that drive. Hundred percent. But but the fact is, most people listening haven't even experimented with, you know, go, you know, just chipping around a green and thinking, okay, rather than thinking, okay, what, how do I, what's chipping? What's the, the formula for chipping? Flat left wrist. Well, what right all left all that stuff. If you just were thinking to yourself, like, what did it, what would it feel like if I just concentrated on that spot? The same way as if I were playing catch with that spot. And it's, the thing is, it works. I, I promise you, it works more than you. It would blow your mind how, how close you can hit it to a hole on the putting or chipping green. But as you said, get to the fourth hole, and you've got a tight lie to a tight pin. And all of a sudden, now you're like, what's the formula for that? It's this, well, it's the same one. I, I'll tell you why. You want to talk about driving yourself nuts. If you think about all the 
formulas for every type of shot that comes up in a round of golf. It really is no surprise why sometimes we're mentally drained. Oh, uh, the focus it takes to, to call on that type of stuff is it's unbelievable. And that's why so many golfers are freaking exhausted after a round of golf. They've been in their heads. They've been trying to swing. Yeah. They're getting this feedback. It's not working. It just goes on and on and on. And golf actually can be uh, amazingly freeing and fun. Um, but it's it takes actually, like Dick was saying, it takes a lot of skill. It takes failure. It takes making mistakes. And a lot of us don't want to make mistakes out there. We want to shoot that. We want to shoot that score. We want to win the NASA. We want to win the tournament. And it's just too much on the line for us and we haven't handled it so so for someone like ricky fowler he'll grow from that if he doesn't get too caught well up he in cried his eyes out when it, it was over right but if he if he's all caught up in the emotions of that then he'll get in that space again and that could happen it's about the learning he takes from it you know it's funny Rizokal mentioned kids and it's part of a, a sermon i've given uh for some time now but it's basically the the, the, the title of it's called failure failure to succeed or failing to succeed right. now in the in this thing i've this little talk i've given i always talk about how i use golf as an example of how children learn everything so instinctively it's all spatial using his uh his term there. It's everything for a kid is spatial. How to ride a bike, learn to juggle, learn to snowboard, learn to golf. And one of the things I've said is I don't know, I don't know what your experience has been. I want you to get your thoughts on this. I don't know anybody with a single digit handicap who plays golf that didn't learn it as a kid. Mainly because if you took up the game in your late 20s, you get to a point in your career where all of a sudden your friends and peers are going to these tournaments. It's almost impossible to learn as a grown-up because of what he said. Because, as, because all of a sudden now you're logical, ego-driven, performance, trauma, <laughs> traumatized. It's, it, and because then you're now, cause it's all logical to a grown-up, but to a kid of 10, 11, 12, 8, it's all just reactive. Yeah, it's really, that's, a, the, that's a perfect analogy. I mean, unfortunately, so kids do things. Because kids don't mind looking foolish. Oh, and they're fully invested. You look at like a three-year-old that's asking to go somewhere. He's fully invested. His body, his mm-hmm. emotion, everything is about going to the store or wherever he wants. We get a little bit older, and so people might think that we've been overplaying like trauma, things like that. No, or not. Or not. Because then you start to, so you're 15 years old, and you want to go to the store with your mom, but you're thinking, like, how will she see this? What, how will dad react? What if I run into some of my friends at the mall? And they can see me with my mom or something. Right. All these judgments and evaluations. So instead of just spatially going for it, we're now making all these judgments, and that's the logical mind, like Dick was saying. The left side of your brain, it's in the present or in the past. So in the past, I've done something. I've been ridiculed for it. And if this happens, will I get ridiculed again for it? And using the golf analogy, you get up to a certain hole. Your buddies know this is the one that always gives you trouble. And that's all thinking about trauma that's happened in the past, not what's happening right in this moment. Yeah. So trauma is a very dramatic word, but it's things that's happened to us. And so then, so again, you wonder, why aren't we just doing something logical, like playing by feel when we play? Well, it's like everything other parts of our lives. We get thrown in. We got. We want to figure this out, and the the ego is actually trying to protect us. Have you ever though? Have you ever met a, a guy our age and in their fifties that started in their thirties that was really that had any natural move? They may have willed themselves, or you know, as their business grew, they had more time to play golf. They may have gotten okay at it, but they don't have a natural move well, because you know it's an unnatural thing to do unless you go at it from a different point of view. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I'm not sure that I ever have. Maybe maybe there is. That's totally anecdotal. But but kids just have this wonderful way of, of mimicking. Mm-hmm. They just follow. They just do it. And they don't care if they miss the ball. They don't care what. They don't care about anything. Absolutely. Uh, whereas most of us, you know, like I, I've learned some things as an adult that were, you know, fairly spatial. One of them being snowboarding. And, and the thing is, I spent two days that when I first started learning on the bunny hill with little kids on your butt I'm, I'm, and you know hurting myself yep. but mainly I put myself in a position where I, I was potentially embarrassing I didn't care personally but most people would have dropped off for two reasons it's a very painful learning curve and it's kind of humiliating to be doing it with eight-year-olds but uh, I've always felt like if you push through that then the rewards are great before we get done here today there's a couple things I want to run by you so we've had some good feedback. Uh, thanks to everyone that subscribes on iTunes. It's a simple, just leave a comment or rate it. That way it's more available to other people. This comes from a buddy of mine who I've actually introduced to Sean Casey. 
I think you've met him, Rudra. Oh, yeah, Rudra. Yep. Rudra Rishi Maharaj. A full golf nerd. Yeah, he's a super nerd. Yeah, he really is a... We should have a term. He's got to be a super golf nerd. He says... Uh, there was a question we were talking about a show recently. He says... Um, we were talking about monitoring ourselves you know, during practice. He said, one thought I had with regards to the question of uh, the mental game, how does one manage oneself during a similar emotional situation in your day-to-day life? He goes on to say, would the person get angry and start throwing things? If they do, then they probably got other problems and shouldn't be worrying about golf. <laughs> but if they roll with the punches and say, well, how do we move forward? Maybe that's the approach they should use on the golf course. And I, it's an interesting thing he says, because I think a lot of guys that lose their lose their stuff on the golf course are able to hold that in in their day-to-day lives but the golf kind of is like it's almost like the powder keg they just can't contain it yeah well i think i think one of the things is is that when we're on the golf course we're generally with people who uh, who we know and when we're with people we know our emotions are closer to the surface i mean you look at any family things things sure. go on in their family but also the golf course it's it's kind of okay in golf culture to to lose it a little bit, and I actually think that golfers use anger as a crutch to um, to play bad. In in all honesty, they will you know I didn't play well because I got angry, and it's actually somehow a noble thing to do to get angry, even if it's uh, subconscious. As they give themselves the excuse, well, I got I was you know had a crappy front nine, and I got really mad, so it's okay because I got really mad. But Ruger breaks an interesting point too, like. You know the type, the kind of freaking out that I have done yeah. on occasion on the golf course. I, I don't. I've never done that in the office. I've never thrown a microphone into a pond. <laughs> like no matter how bad a show I've been on, you know, no matter how bad I performed or thought I did, I never got that mad as I have gotten on the golf course. That's it. You know, there should be a scientific uh, exploration into into why that tends to happen. I just have a sense that we're closer to who we really are when we're on the golf course uh, than in any other environment. I mean, it's a staple of business. You want to really do business with someone, get to know them. You play golf with them. Right. And you see how they operate trying to get out of a bunker three or four the, times. The, yeah, the real person. Absolutely. Um, you know, quickly before we wrap today, uh, he was talking, Zogel was talking about Newtson. I, and I mentioned I played at the course that Newtson played at. But one of the most impressive people I ever met in terms of uh, ego... You know, submitting, whatever, not being worried about the ego is Ben Kern. Oh, ben Kern played on the PGA Tour when there was only 60 guys that keep their cards back in the mid-70s. The guy was a world-class player. By the time I met him, though, he was a world-class seeker. Absolutely. There's the legendary story of Ben is that he basically got caught up as a disciple of Newton, and he just just wanted to be like George, wanted his swing to get... He had a... Listen, obviously, good enough to play on the tour. And I remember playing golf with Ben where he hit it like a 10 handicap, and to the point where I was embarrassed for him. But you know what? He never was. Absolutely. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy has hit some horrible shots. He's horrible right now, but it never deterred him. He never was embarrassed. He never had... It, it always seemed... And at the time, I thought, well, that's crazy. <laughs> you should be embarrassed. But he never was. And it taught me a great lesson. Like, this guy was amongst the top 60 players on the PGA Tour, and he's playing with me, some crappy guy from Moose Jaw, <laughs> and he doesn't care that he can't get it airborne, and when he does, it duck hooks like nothing you've ever seen. So... You know, I was impressed by that, how, how the guy could just be like, well, this is what's happening right now. I'm so glad you brought up Ben Kern. He was, uh, he, he, was, uh, he was a friend of mine. I got to work with him, wrote a lot of articles with him. Right. So uh, an industry friend, um, let's be fair. But um, he was an amazing man. He was one of the most grounded uh, peaceful, mm-hmm. sincere men I ever met, and I think a very lot of, peaceful. I think a lot of that was around. There was an attachment. Yes, he was the director of golf at the National, and then at Devil's Pulpit. But I don't think that made a lick of difference in how he saw himself or self-identified. Mm-hmm. He was just a he was just a, a married father, kids, and he was just so he was grounded. And I think if that was one of the things I learned from him was that. Not attaching, like playing neutral. It doesn't matter really what I have, what what I do on the golf course affecting me as a person. I, I remember he had such cool ways of looking at playing. He said, "Tim, don't pay attention to par. Doesn't matter. Just whatever you shoot, you shoot." Mm-hmm. And there's a couple other things. One was when he'd make a putt, 
whether when it or not, he goes, you know what, once it leaves the club face, it's up to the gods and gravity. Well, I'll tell you, he was, uh, I, I played a, a bunch of golf with Ben um, over the years. And uh, again, I saw him sit some, hit some like ridiculously horrible shots for a guy who played the PGA Tour. I also saw him hit some some PGA Tour quality short game shots. I've never oh seen gosh. anybody who could putt better or chip yeah. better than Ben. Best putter I ever played with. Yeah, me too. And 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 the kind of guy that sank a lot of sort of Jordan Spieth style 15 to 25 foot putts with with the kind of regularly that made made you hate him. <laughs> Because he would be, you know, off the fairway, in a hazard, punch it out, somewhere near the green, chip it in, and you'd make the same score, or, you know, always get it up and down. But uh, just, again, I also saw him, more impressively, hit the kind of shots that I would have gotten mad at, and he never did. Um, I think we're we're pretty much done here. You feel like we've covered everything? Yeah, I just think you could... Uh, that's why Ben has a legacy yeah. of, of protégés, uh, Sean Foley, uh, Tom Jackson, of course. Marty Obama, Chuck. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, he, he was an amazing guy. But one thing I wanted to just, for our, for our listeners, uh, we've covered a lot of kind of high-level stuff about uh, spatial thought, linear thought. One of the coolest videos you could ever see on YouTube is by a woman, Jill Bolt-Taylor, on YouTube. And she's a, she's a neuroscientist scientist and in this ted talk she talks about witnessing herself having a stroke and what happened it's it's dramatic but boy it's one of the best things you could ever see in terms of understanding the difference between left and right brain and about you talk about a person who's grounded and found some peace after after a traumatic incident it's it's amazing uh so we're going to leave it there uh, Jill what? Bolt Taylor. All right. Well, listen, we hope you've all enjoyed that. There'll be a uh, one-week uh, hiatus if you're if you're used to downloading the show uh, every week. We're not going to be doing this next week because I've got very, very important high-level work to do in Mexico. I'm going to clean my basement. Not a boy. Uh, it's uh, Humble Howard at uh, Humble and Fred Radio. You can find me on Twitter. Tim O'Connor. O'ConnorGolf.ca. Got it close. You're, Pretty close. You're doing that on purpose. No, I don't think so. I think I'm having a stroke. Um, listen, we'll be back in a couple weeks. 